This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, thanks for tuning in. I'm looking forward to studying with you. I'm taking a new approach today. I'm going to share with you uh, a few readings that are unrelated, but nevertheless, we're going to kind of go through these bite-sized kinds of studies of different passages. And I'm going to take this approach to the podcast for the foreseeable future. There will be some other series, I think, that come down the pipe or some longer, you know, more more protracted and concentrated type topical studies like we've had in the past. But at least for the, the foreseeable future, I want to change things up a little bit and kind of go with these more bite-sized types of, of studies. So the first passage that I want you to consider with me today is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 where Peter says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So Peter is reminding us that there is the person that each of us sees externally, and then there is the hidden person of the heart as the Holy Spirit describes it here, the hidden person of the heart, the the reality which God sees. And what one does externally should be integrated with what one is internally. Uh, That's why integrity, which has the root word of integrate, integrity is often defined as something uh, doing the right thing even when no one is watching. You may have heard that said about character, character being defined that way. And we know when we can tell when we're not integrated, we're not being consistent. We we know when our outward actions don't reflect our inward heart and we are going through the motions and we can only pretend to be holy when other people are watching. And this was a big issue in Jesus's day that he observed and called out and certainly continues to be just look at Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and really the all, all of the Sermon on the Mount. And so God is reminding us here where he looks, what he is concerned with, right? As he told Samuel, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so he reminds us of that fact and he is defining what kind of spirit or heart is very precious in his sight. And in doing that, he is calling us to pay attention. This is where we need to pay attention the most. This is where it's needed, that inner man, that hidden person. You know, if I'm committed enough to playing a part, I can fool other people for a while. But God, of course, is never fooled. He is not mocked, Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 7. A man reaps whatever he sows. And God's anger and pity are stirred up if I have a longing to be the star of my own show. In John 12, 43, that was the very issue going on there. Those individuals knew who Jesus was and even believed him, John says. Uh, but because of their their fear of individuals, other people, they were not confessing him. And John says, because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. right? Because they were ultimately concerned with pleasing people. Even though they knew the truth about Jesus, they couldn't bring themselves to be honest about it with themselves and with others. They, they wouldn't confess him. And so I can work myself to death seeking to please people and seeking to find new people, fresh crops of strangers to impress with. Uh, 
my looks or wealth or knowledge or whatever the case may be, whatever fleshly asset garners the praise of men. But in the end, I will always be left unsettled and unsatisfied and lost. Because Satan is ever working to fixate our minds on the external and the temporal and the visible, so that we believe that is all there is to reality, and that we render all judgment and praise based on those things. But Jesus says, Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment in John seven twenty four. And so the devil loves Christians who are immersed in image upkeep, whose religion is no more than skin deep. And those are the very folks that accomplish his purposes because such pride themselves on their looks, whether we're talking about, as Peter is specifically focusing on physical appearance or looks in terms of actions and just kind of the going through the motions, as I mentioned earlier, for whatever reason. Maybe it's for popularity. Maybe it's for, who knows, some some angle, influence. Um, but folks who pride themselves on those things can only evaluate others by the same carnal standard, which in turn leads to favoritism and division and speaking ill of other people and a host of evil attitudes like jealousy and suspicion, all of which are condemned in Scripture, all of which come with the territory of being a phony. And it destroys souls. And that is what Satan wants. And that's exactly what he wants you to forget. So he is more than happy to let you be a, quote, member of a local church, have a good reputation, socialize with Christians, appear to serve and be kind to others. And he's even happy when you look good doing it. We might even say especially happy when you look good doing it. Just so long as your heart and soul belong to him. God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And the Holy Spirit says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In Hebrews 3 and verse 12. That's the first passage that I wanted to share with you. The second passage comes from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 through 26. This is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 through 26. Again, unrelated to our previous you know, the first six minutes of this podcast. So let's look at another passage together. First Corinthians twelve twenty one says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of, of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated, uh, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now this is, of course, as I'm sure you know, part of a larger context in the discussion about the body of Christ and the necessity for each individual Christian to 
not only fulfill their role, but also appreciate other Christians as they fulfill their roles. So Christians, no matter how lightly esteemed by other Christians, are still Christians. And their work, if I understand Paul correctly, is worthy of more honor than the rest. Maybe their visibility within the local church or brotherhood at large even is not the same as, say, a big-name preacher or a well-known group of Christians in a large locale. But nevertheless, those Christians are indispensable. That's the word that Paul, excuse me, Paul uses there in verses 21 and 22. And we might tend to think otherwise. We, you know, the heavy lifting, I think we're inclined to think is just done by a select few within the brotherhood. And I think even on the smaller scale in the local church. But the heavy lifting of evangelism edification in the New Testament was never accomplished by a mere name recognition. And yes, there are single, single individuals who are noted examples within the book of Acts. And as we read and we know, Paul was inspired to write a great deal of the New Testament. But it wasn't just the working of one individual when you get to looking. No, it was the honest, humble, and sincere efforts of all of God's people, those individuals whom Paul converted and left in those places like Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica, whom he praised for their participation in the gospel as they preached to others and converted others, and they they were growing spiritually together in their efforts to serve Christ. Because they used whatever means were given to them wherever they were in the world. And you find that principle stated time and time again in each of those letters. And you find it the, the, the growth and the work encouraged among those individuals. Listen to Ephesians 4 and verse 16. Paul says, From him, that's Christ, the whole body fitted and held together by every supporting limit, ligament grows and builds itself up in love, listen again, through the work of each individual part. It grows and builds itself up in love through the work of each individual part. I like this quote from Dan Shipley. He says, What we consider to be little and unimportant things may be wrought with tremendous consequences. Take something like a horseshoe nail, for example. Certainly not much to make a fuss over, is it? But as I heard somewhere, for want of a nail, the horseshoe was lost, and for want of a horseshoe, the horse was lost, and for want of a horse, the rider was lost, and for want of a rider, the message was lost, and for want of a message, the battle was lost. The battle and possibly hundreds of lives, thousands of lives affected because of one small and seemingly insignificant horseshoe nail. And I think he makes... A good point. Our vision is so very limited, and we're not a place. We're we're not in a place to judge, or because we can't see the bigger picture of how God is using each individual person who is in submission to Him and to His Son to advance His cause and to save others. I want to share with you one of my a little stanza from one of my favorite poems by Henry Longfellow called The Builders. And I think this is the second or third stanza. He says, Nothing useless is or low. Each thing in its place is best. And what seems but idle show strengthens and supports the rest. 
you know, the judgment scene of Matthew 25 that Jesus is describing there in that chapter, it reminds us, and he's reminding us of how we discount the importance of little things in this life, but those very same things have a bearing on where we spend eternity. Things like preparing food and sharing food or showing hospitality or just visiting the sick. Jesus reveals that a lot of folks are going to deem that kind of work unworthy to engage in and maybe look down their noses at it. But he says, this is the very thing that affects our eternal destiny. Verses 45 and 46, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me either. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the man who has no time for little things, quote little things, is a man who has no time to serve Jesus. And one is no better who thinks he can hire a preacher to take care of the little things on his behalf. Those who shun personal involvement in serving others, even in small ways, do worse than neglect needs. They rob their own selves of blessings in this life and in eternity. And so the, quote, little things by done by, quote, little people do not go unnoticed by the Lord. They matter to him. He says not even a cup of cold water given to one of his children in his name will be overlooked. And we remember Jesus took note of the widow who gave her one cent offering and said that she had put in more than all the others. If he's aware of such things, well, then he's certainly aware of the, quote, little things in your life. One more passage that I want to consider with you and will be done is also from 1 Corinthians, this time from chapter 3. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verses 14 and 15, Paul says there, If anyone's work which he has built on remains, built on it remains, that's the foundation of Christ that he's, when he says it there, if anyone's work on which he has built on the foundation of Christ remains, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. Now, Paul in the context is talking about his role as an apostle and teacher of the gospel as well as other men like him uh, who taught others. Because the church in Corinth, if you were to go back to chapter 1, they were dividing over these individual teachers, and they were creating these factions based on who baptized them. And so they were elevating apostolic teachers and teachers in general like Apollos, who had come through there at one point, uh, to wear as labels and make little groups within the church. And Paul is rebuking them for this and reminding them that they need to focus on Christ and that he and all the other apostles are just servants and fellow workers with God. If you look at the beginning of, of chapter 3, he says, I watered and I planted and Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the increase. And so the first three chapters are spent reorienting these brethren to the Savior, and to the Master, the one King of us all. And He is the one foundation, which one legitimate foundation that any man can, can lay, that can put down and build upon to convert others. Certainly not Himself or His own ideas or His own teaching, but Christ. 
And so this is the point that Paul is making. Yes, you, you, everyone builds on Christ and converts can convert others. And sometimes that work is burned up and a man is going to suffer loss. And what he means by that is that not everyone who initially receives the gospel is, is going to continue in it. They won't withstand the flaming trials of this life. And so how hard must it be to see so much of your life's work go up in flames like that? How true is is that point in any context, regardless of what kind of work that it is you do, uh, but especially in the cause of Christ? How hard must it have been for Paul to see Demas, for example, whom he calls his fellow worker in places like Philemon 124, who had been with him for so long only to, at the end of his life, desert him, as Paul says, for the love of the world in Second Timothy four and verse ten, Demas, having loved this present, having loved this present world, has deserted me or abandoned me. How hard would it have been for Paul to accept the fact that ferocious wolves would arise from his beloved brethren in Ephesus? Even some, I think, he implies from the eldership there to lead many disciples to hell in Acts twenty and verse thirty. He was aware of these realities. Paul taught these people. He laid the foundation, Christ Jesus, crucified for the forgiveness of sins. And then he labored with those people. As he says, he labored with God in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9. As God was adding individuals as living stones to his church. And Paul was was blessed and found joy in engaging that work. It was his life's work. And Paul even rejoiced at the thought of seeing Christians in heaven whom he personally knew and taught. He talks about this openly. He says, What is our hope and our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? You are indeed our glory and our joy, he tells the church at Thessalonica. And at the same time, he was aware of the very real possibility that not all those whom he taught personally and knew we're going to endure the flames of trial. He tells the churches of Galatia that I fear for you, that my efforts for you may have been in vain because there were waves of unfaithfulness washing through those churches as Judaizing teachers were coming in and disrupting individuals and, and their faith. So not all of one's work will remain to the end. That is to say, not all who receive the gospel joyously will have enough root to endure times of testing. And this is something Jesus taught from the beginning in the parable of the sower, for example, in Luke 8.13. And he goes on to warn later in Matthew 24 that many false prophets will arise and mislead many, and because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Now, this is not to wallow in bleakness. I don't mention those passages to bring us down, but to help us square with the reality. The reality that first, falling away and not enduring till the end is a threat which is real, and we're only one prideful step away from that road to damnation and beginning our walk down it. 1 Corinthians 10.12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed so that he does not fall. Second, we have to fight. And we have to fight while there's still time. 
We need a fight to restore ensnared brethren and a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to himself so that uh, he will also not be tempted. And we need a fight to reconcile a lost world to God through Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that is the truth that we need to live and to teach others. Thirdly, we need to square with the reality that when all efforts have been exhausted and failed, and brethren fall away whom we thought would never fall away, we should remember that that was foretold and also forewarned. And we should resolve to stay true to the Lord lest we share their fate. You look in places like Acts eight, excuse me, like Acts eleven twenty three, when Barnabas is there in Antioch, and he is a newcomer there. There's already Christians in that place, and they were first called Christians in Antioch. And Barnabas comes down there, and he sees it, and he's so encouraged, and he loves those people. And it says in verse twenty three that he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. If you look carefully throughout the book of Acts, you'll find such phrases over and over again as. Men like Barnabas and others traveled to various churches to encourage them and build them up, and they would say, remain true to the Lord. We are going to suffer loss. Paul says as much. But salvation, salvation will still be yours if you hold fast through your many trials. Your work may be burned up, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved, Jesus says. Matthew twenty four thirteen. And remember too, as discouraging and as disappointing and tragic as it is, when a soul who has once received the gospel turns away from it, no one is more disappointed than God. He understands better than we do our own suffering, and he is grieved over it more than we are when one of his children turns away from him. Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Brother, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Paul mourned for the fallen. He mourned for Demas. He wept with the brethren at Ephesus when he left them. He prayed for the restoration of men like Alexander and Hymenaeus. And I'm certain that he prayed for Demas as well. But even as he weeps for Demas, if you continue reading in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's thoughts return to God's faithfulness, to Christ's faithfulness in standing with him, and to the salvation that he eagerly anticipates. Because he, know, he knows that his soul Regardless of Demas's choice, tragic as it was, Paul could rest secure in his salvation. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You see, there's only one soul in the end that you can determine will never be forfeited. And that's your own. Thanks for listening today. This has been Faithful Sayings.